Hi-Fi podcast where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And shh, this is the most amazing podcast you'll ever hear with songs from a library. All right. Um, (laughs) My entrances keep getting better and better. They do. (laughs) The less time I spend working on them, the better they are. It's amazing how that works. Yeah, it's great for people who subscribe and are turned off. I've completely turned it off by 30 seconds in. It was weird how you shared that stat about how, like, we have a ton of downloads, but they all cut off exactly 18 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm rot. (laughs) <laughs> Play some trivia. You know more than I know. You know more than I know. You know more than I know. In my best monotone voice, okay. I'm going to read you the lyrics of a song, and I need you to tell me the name of the song. And as a clue, all of the songs have a food of some kind in the title. So all the songs have some sort of food in the title? Yes. Okay. Okay. All right, here we go. Number one. No one I think is in my tree. I mean, it must be high or low. That is, you can't, you know, tune in. But it's all right. That is, I think it's not too bad. Um, it's a Beatles song. With food. Strawberry Fields Forever. Very good. Okay, number two. Now for ten years, we've been on our own, and moss grows fat on a rolling stone. But that's not how it used to be. When the jester sang for the king and queen in a coat he borrowed from James Dean and a voice that came from you and me. It's an American Pie by Don McLean. I gave you a lot of lyrics, right? Yeah, yeah. And I gave good. you the one with I gave you the lines with Jester. Okay. It is. It is very good. Okay. Next one. Okay. So look here, I put her on the back of my bike, and uh, we went riding down by old man Johnson's farm. Put her on the back of my bike. Ooh, I, I, I shouldn't, oh, Raspberry Beret. Very good. Okay. Good work. Okay, next one. I walked on over and i asked her to dance thinking maybe later on we'd be making romance but every guy (laughs) there was thinking like me i had to stand in line oh my gosh don't want to make you do it again but i kind of do want you to make me do it again (laughs) well i should have okay and this time i'll include one extra line for you okay thank you all right here we go i walked on over and i asked her to dance thinking maybe later on we'd be making romance but every guy there was thinking like me i had to stand in line to get a dance with 
Sweet pea. Very good. Ooh, good one. All right. All right. <clears throat> Here we go. Heard about the old time sailor men. They'd eat the same thing again and again. Warm beer and bread, they said, could raise the dead. Well, it reminds me of the menu at a holiday inn. But times have changed for sailors these days. When I'm in port, I get what I need. Not just Havana's or banana or daiquiris, <laughs> but that American creation on which I feed. <laughs> Cheeseburger in paradise. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I thought that would be really hard. Good, good work. Oh man, it only okay. took you thirty-five episodes before you made a Jimmy Buffett reference. <laughs> <laughs> man, I'm really good at the food ones. I'm like a music food savant. I was feeling bad about these too. Okay, here we go. Next one. Boss and toss, don't shake my hand. Give me your claw. Two tears in a haystack, scarecrow, get back tonight. There will be a feather treatment beneath the symbol. We'll all assemble. Oh, how we'll fly. Oh, how we'll tremble. Cut the cake. We'll all get well. Turn up the speakers. Hop, flop, squawk. It's a keeper. Oh, man, I have no clue. <laughs> Ice Cream for Crow by Captain People. Oh, That's gosh. One. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Here's here's the one that you're going to It's actually pretty close to how he sings it. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, not too bad. All right. Here's the one I think you should have the most fun with. Okay. <clears throat> Love is like a bomb, baby. Come on, get it on. Living like a lover with a radar phone. Looking like a tramp, like a video vamp. Demolition, woman, can I be your man? Razzle, a dazzle, a flash, a little light. Television, lover, baby, go all night. Sometime, anytime. Sugar me sweet, little Missy Innocent. Mm -mm. I've heard it, the video vamp. Is it, uh, it's not like Cherry Pie by Warrant or something. I almost played that, and this would be they, this would have been the one I would have switched out for that. If that's a hint. Video vamp. Gosh, what is that? Uh, I don't know if it's in there. Pour some sugar on me. Oh dang! I was in <laughs> the right kind of uh, hair metal area. <laughs> yep, that's why I was going back and forth. Which one am I going to play? Which one of these songs that I hate am I going to play? <laughs> All right. Okay. The last two, I think you, I think you've got a really good chance of these, especially this one. Okay. <clears throat> Lift six foot seven, foot eight <laughs> foot punch. <laughs> Daylight come and me <laughs> wanna go home. Six foot seven, foot eight foot punch. I'm trying to decide who you sound like when you're doing this. <laughs> uh, that is uh, Harry Belafonte's uh, Deo the Banana. This is the Banana Song, Banana Boat Song. Banana Boat Song, very good. Okay. All right. Last one. This one is pretty much especially for you. Okay. Or Lobster Thermidor All Crevette 
with a Mornay sauce, served in a proven called manner with shallots and aubergine, garnished with truffle pâté, brandy, and a fried egg on top. <sighs> the toughest line from this song, and the only one I could have done. Mmm. All right, do it one more time. <laughs> okay. With feeling. All of that was that was how I feel. <laughs> it's as much feeling as I have as my children. <laughs> or lobster thermidor aw crevette with a mornay sauce served in a Provencal manner with shallots and aubergine garnished with truffle pate brandy and a fried egg on top. Gosh. Lobster thermidor. Where is that? I know I've I mean, there's only one song that would ever say that. It's not Savoy Truffle by the Beatles, is it? It is not. Dang. The last two words, we'll give it away, but the two words that I left off at the end of that line were uh, would be and spam. The spam song. The spam song? <laughs> by Monty Python. Monty Python? <laughs> you, you made a Monty Python, especially, Monty Python question, especially for me? I did. Oh, and man. especially for our turntable talk today. Okay, very good. At least part of it. Yeah, that 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 makes sense. All right, um, <laughs> that's a pretty good quiz. I felt <laughs> really, really well, really good about it. That I just kind of got knocked down a few pegs at the end. Oh no, you did great. All right. Better than I thought you would. All right, well, it's uh, my turn. I have an audio quiz for you. Uh, this one's pretty straightforward. Name me the bands, the song if you got them. But I'm mostly looking for the bands, and there's a theme that holds them all together. And this is one of those where if you get the theme, it should help you with some of the more obscure bands. Okay. All right, here we go. Track one. Track two. Track three. I got a picture of a photograph of a wedding in a shell. It's just a burning age of memory. I never kissed until track four. And that's it. Again, I'm looking primarily for the name of the band and what's the theme that holds all the songs together. Okay. I definitely know like three of them, but I, I'm hoping by the end of the the end of us recording. I will have at least figured some of it out. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have the theme? Not yet. Okay. 
Okay. Well, we will uh, we'll play them again at the end and give you uh, you and Joe, you the listener, and Joe the the other guy a chance to uh, answer them. Perfect. I think it's time now for turntable talk. Everybody is talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. If you haven't yet been initiated into the fun that is library music, we're hoping today will change that. This isn't Muzak. Well, the part of the industry we'll be going over it isn't at least. Library music, also called production music or incidental music, is heard in most of the movies and TV shows you've ever seen. All those snippets of songs that are playing in the background that are designed to tell you how to feel when you're watching a show or a movie, sort of an invisible jumbotron telling you what to feel and when, that's library music. These songs are usually recorded long before the show or movie ever even existed, and they were recorded by people whose names you probably don't know, and they didn't care. We're going to spend the majority of our time today on the golden age of library music recordings, and yes, that exists. It took place in the 60s and the 70s. We're also going to focus mostly on the UK for this, which, along with Germany and Italy, was at the forefront of these regularly amazing sounding records. Despite that, I want to start in the US with a person who was behind the very first country song ever recorded, who supervised the recording of Mamie Smith's Crazy Blues, which we talked about in a different episode, which created the race record industry. He pioneered field recordings before the Lomaxes. He discovered both Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family, and he brought Latin music, Latin American music to the world. His name was Ralph Peer. And not only did Peer do all of that, but he also created the pay bottle that covers royalties to songwriters, as well as half of those royalties going to the record industry. So good and terrible. Peer came up with the idea of taking royalties for other people's for other people's compositions. All of that, however, is a topic for a different time. And that was a different book I read, but it's still has a little bit to do with today. It's important to know who he is, though, because of how substantial his contribution to American music history has been, and because he opened the door for music brokering. Ralph Peer's business of discovering and recording the best, and often first, Americana, folk, blues, country, Latin, and Latin American music had been going well through the 20s, when the Depression hit, he, bought, he brought an idea to his Hollywood connections, which he had a lot of. Now that movies were starting to have sound, they needed music mixed in, he thought, and he wanted to be the one doing it. Peer Industries started making what was then called incidental music for movies and opened, eventually, a studio in the UK. Meanwhile, also in the UK, there was already a company that had the corner on library music to this point called... Music De Wolf. Music De Wolf was started in 1909 by Mayor De Wolf, whose job was selecting sheet music for live musical accompaniment to silent films. He built a catalog of compositions to license for these performances, and in 1927, he began using a tech- new technology to record music onto disc and having those played instead of using live orchestras. There's a lot less people to pay. DeWolf recorded tracks for movies, newsreels, government training films for the Ministry of Information and British Rail, TV commercials, and TV shows. DeWolf opened up a shop in North America, essentially halting Piers' foray into library music. 
Today, the DeWolf catalog has over 80,000 compositions, and many have been sampled by artists like Jay-Z, Beyonce, and Gorillaz. Music DeWolf dominated library music from the 1920s into the 1950s. And while Music DeWolf had history, clout, and power, it was a company called KPM that really rocketed library music into what is known as the Golden Age, the 60s and 70s. KPM is a company that was founded in 1780 when it was an instrument maker. The company expanded into music publishing and also started using their retail outlets to sell instruments, theater tickets, sheet music, and eventually records. In 1955, they started producing library music. In the 60s, a man named Robin Phillips became the head of KPM, and he wanted to change the very essence of library music. Up until that point, it had been Muzak, light, forgettable orchestrations. Phillips wanted the music to evoke mood, situations, and emotional responses. Artists were encouraged to find new and unexpected textures, effects, and instrumental combinations. This was a new approach, and that level of artistic freedom worked unbelievably well. It revolutionized the music created in all of the music libraries in Europe. Even today, if you're looking to get into library music, it's the KPM records from the 60s and 70s that you'll want to start with. And though the music was electric, the album covers were all the same. A dark green cover with KPM and the title on it. And the album titles, also often abnormally whimsical, usually fit the mood the album was trying to convey. Music to Wolf, seeing his market share crumbling, quickly began doing much the same, and often with the same musicians, as did Pierre, who had an album on his label that well captures a 70s aesthetic. Listen to 1972's Mindbender by Stringtronics. with what we now know as electronica and ambient music was at its peak in little hidden away offices recorded by names most people would never recognize. And it wasn't just those genres that were part of that experimentation. It included funk, rock, soul, jazz, exotica, and they were often mixed together in sometimes the same tracks. Songwriters were given very little to work with, which was great for those who wanted to experiment. Songwriters were given free reign for the most part with little to no direction. A good producer would simply give only a few words about a mood, about the mood the song should be. There was no actual movie or show for them to work with at all, no visuals to paint any kind of a picture. While this type of direction or lack of could be too expansive for many songwriters, the cream of the library crop rose to the top and excelled. They saw this as a way to push boundaries and try things they'd never been able to try before. But for them previously, if they wanted to spend time experimenting, it could be very costly, as studio times is not cheap. Here, though, it was what they were paid to do. There also couldn't be too much time spent thinking back on a project and how to improve on it and potentially ruin it. There simply wasn't time. Once a piece was recorded, that was usually it. No overdubs, usually a single recording, and it was on to the next. Entire albums were often recorded in single sessions. This system catered to those who were willing to write quickly, 
work within multiple genres and didn't mind anonymity. Many artists were also able to work within multiple studios, writing and recording for KPM one day and then DeWolf the next. If we go back to Meyer DeWolf for a moment, when he started using recorded accompaniment in place of live orchestration during the films, a few people got really pissed. Namely, people who needed money playing in orchestras during movies. Unions were livid and were able to push through rules not allowing these types of recordings to be made in the UK. As composer Alan Parker explains, for most of the 60s and 70s, recording library music in England was forbidden by the musicians' union since they thought it endangered the common practice of TV variety shows employing a live studio orchestra. KPM, in response, simply upped and went to Germany for the recording session. Though there seemed to be sometimes ways around this, musicians were often sent to other companies to use their studios and then coming back the next day. More often than not, this happened in Germany and Italy, where very nice studios were and were more active. Germany and Italy are also the other prime areas where library music production houses started up and made an impact on library music, offering more great artists and experimental sounds. Not the only areas, certainly, but the ones most talked about by collectors and enthusiasts. Instead of going into the names and histories of some of these, we're going to move on now to some more fun stuff. <laughs> we're going to go through a few of the more well-known 60s and 70s library music greats and hear a little bit about why they're so revered. And we're going to start with Keith Mansfield. He was KPM's most prolific recording artist. His most well-known composition was used for a British sports program called Grandstand. In addition to that, and the Wimbledon theme, Quentin Tarantino has used a Mansfield track in both Kill Bill and Grindhouse. The song is called Funky Fanfare. Mansfield, while somewhat experimental, sees libra library music as creatively utilitarian, saying, you had to have music that people could use, and they would use the most odd pieces of music. Mansfield wrote quickly, and he wrote a lot. He wrote Grandstand in his car on his way to work, and he said, I can remember driving into London at 6 o'clock in the morning, stopping at a traffic light and, light and writing, ba-ba-dum-bum-bum. This... This song was used for that show for over 30 years, was conceived in minutes, and was completed by lunchtime. He continues to say, I used to write three compositions a day. If I'd had more time to think about it, I would have said, you have to make up your mind. It's either pop music or orchestral. Next up is John Cameron, another fixture of the KPM stable of writers. Cameron started off in pop music, writing the Scylla Black hit, If I Thought You'd Ever Change Your Mind and arranging Donovan's Sunshine, Superman, and Mellow Yellow albums. 
He was also a member of Alexis Corner's CCS, whose arrangement of the Led Zeppelin song Whole Lot of Love went on to form the basis of Top's, Top of the Pops theme music. His song, 49th Street Breakdown, was used by NFL Films for decades. did the perfect job of capturing everything we think of when we think of 70s movies. If you close your eyes, the next clip will have you behind the wheel of a car chase with Gene Hackman or Steve McQueen riding shotgun. That song, called The Great Escape, is from Cameron's most well-known album, Jazz Rock. Alan Parker, who we mentioned a little bit earlier, was one of the most sought-after session players in Britain. He played on records by the Walker Brothers, Cliff Richard, Rosemary Clooney, Kate Bush, and Serge Gainsbourg. He played the riff that opens David Bowie's Rebel Rebel. He also played, mostly uncredited, on hundreds of KPM records. Most of the composers didn't care at all where these songs were being used and by whom. Songs were pulled from the library and used sometimes over and over for just about any film, TV show, or commercial. One genre of film that seemed to be especially keen on using these cheap tracks was porn. In an interview, Parker said this, You never know what it's going to be used for. You never, ever know. During, that inter- during an interview with a radio station, the host told him that he was massive in the porn industry. Parker replied, what? What are you talking about? Turned out that a piece he'd written for KPM in 1976 called You've Got What It Takes had since been used for over a hundred porn films, from Barbara Broadcast and Pretty Peaches to the ABCs of Love and Sex, Australian style. He continues to say, I mean, that was the first I'd heard of that. But I mean, okay, novel. Hawkshaw, mostly a Hammond organ player, was another KPM stalwart and has been awarded a doctorate for his musical contributions. Hawkshaw was a member of Love Deluxe, who had a number one hit with the disco track, Here Comes That Sound Again. And he could be seen and heard playing with David Bowie on Bowie at the Beeb. He also played on a Hollies album, but most importantly, he played on a song that has been sampled over 600 times. It's the uh, Stagger Lee of samples. The song is called Champ. And there's no way that you have not heard it. It was even released as a single by Alan Hawkshaw and others going under the name The Mohawks. (laughs) 
Buckshot composed dozens of tracks that have been used as TV themes and commercial jingles for decades. He also composed all of the music for the series Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious Worlds. In listening to a lot of this library music recently, Hawkshaw is definitely one of our favorite composers, but we, we both are suckers for the Hammond organ, so he's got that going for him. Ron Giesen was one of the most experimental composers and helped usher in ambient and electronic music. He wrote music that ended up being used in commercials ranging from headache tablets and to school informational videos. His landmark album, Electrosound, was clearly John Cage influenced and was recorded two years after Giesen had co-written the title suite of Pink Floyd's Adam Hart Mother album. Electrosound includes tape manipulations of mandolins and banjos, cymbals played with violin bows, and the sound of Giesen shouting into the piano. Giesen wrote, I present some tunes, untunes, anti-tunes, delightful and undelightful sounds for all sorts of purposes and state that the pieces herein displayed may be combined with themselves as much out of sync as possible to achieve thicker, diffuse atmosphere and playing things at different speeds would not be wrong. At one point, Giesen was asked to write a jingle for Roundtree's wine gums. I think they made candy or something. They had simply asked him to write something new. When he gave them a song, they responded, not as new as that, Ron. <laughs> so so he took the song back, and he added banjo, gave it to them again, and this time they said, mm, not as new as that either. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of out there. A few of Giesen's records have been reissued by Trunk Records, which is a label that specializes in more off-kilter recordings, and quite a few library music albums, and they've reissued a lot of Giesen stuff. That label's run by Johnny Trunk, who we'll talk about a little bit later on, who has also released a book about library music called The Music Library. The book has some historical and interesting information, but mostly it's incredibly valuable just as an art piece. The album covers he put in there are just amazing. Sven Liebeck is another name you'll certainly run across if you get sucked into this world. You may recognize his songs from Wes Anderson's Life Aquatic and many Hanna-Barbera cartoons. The Life Aquatic soundtrack employs five Liebeck tunes, from his 1973 album, Inner Space.
He also did a lot of work that ended up being in documentaries and industrial films. His 1970 song, Misty Canyon, was sampled by Danger Mouse in 2005 on Basket Case. Lieback has released more than 30 albums and orchestrated over 300 tracks, some of those for Lionel Richie and Neil Diamond. The next name you're bound to encounter is Basil Kirchin. Kirchin could legitimately be called the father of ambient music. Sorry, you know. Kirchin started as a drummer in the 1940s. In the 50s, he left London and traveled in, in both the U.S. and India. When he got back to London in the early 60s, he arrived with a new musical approach, and not just new for himself, new for everybody. Kirchin combined standard rhythms with impressionistic, multi-layered sounds and sidled into electronic music on occasion. He also moved into free jazz with surprising aplomb. Here's a clip from his 1971 album, Worlds Within Worlds. Kirchin mostly recorded it for Music to Wolf, and he recorded a lot. As far as London is concerned, there's one name most of you will be familiar with, and that's Delia Derbyshire. She's one of the main reasons that library music, though made decades ago, still sounds like the future. Her songs sound like you imagine being older and flying around on jetpacks. When film and TV companies wanted strange music to soundtrack their sci-fi productions, this is where they went. The most famous example of her work is, of course, the Doctor Who theme. Uh, it was written by Ron Grainier and transformed by Derbyshire into an electronic music masterpiece. reissued and sell pretty well. She would have been a giant in her own time if she were not a she. We mentioned earlier that Germany had great library music labels too, and one of those was called Color Sound. 
Color Sound is where the frontman for Krautrock psych band Brain Ticket worked on and released experimental library tracks. He used this time to flesh out ideas he'd later incorporate into his band's albums. One of his library albums, the incredibly dark, nearly horror film-esque Biomechanoid, features cover art by H.R. Geiger. Here's a clip of one of these nightmarishly brilliant tracks. This album sounds like the physical incarnation of the word moist being whispered into your ear by a serial killer. In Italy, there were and still are some incredibly prolific composers. Obviously, Ennio Morricone would be one of these. Though best known for soundtracks, he also made library, library records and lots of them. It's one of his boyhood friends who is the person you should know for library music. His name is Alessandro Alessandroni. And He's the whistle, whistler and guitarist in Morricone's Spaghetti Western soundtracks. his forte, but he also wrote and or orchestrated dozens of albums for libraries uh, and soundtracks, lots and lots of movies too. His sound moves from Western to Exotica to jazz and beyond. There are dozens of these wonderful composers, orchestrators, and musicians we'd never have enough time to talk about, so I hope you appreciate the very quick glimpse into just a few of them. There'll be one more when uh, we move on to the song section of the show. As far as collectability goes, these albums are often crazy expensive. Nearly all of them were never officially released as proper albums, and even more have never ever been played at all, with thousands sitting in library shelves around the world waiting to be discovered. The ones that did make it out into the wild used to be really cheap, which is probably why they started being purchased and sampled. They sound so great, and no one's ever heard them, and they're cheap. Once sampling of these took off, the prices, of course, skyrocketed. Reissues of a lot of these albums are being released, much to the chagrin of a lot of record collectors. Many of the many collectors weren't happy when this reissue boom started. Instead of being excited that the albums were now accessible, collectors were often irritated that their original pressings can now be bought for $10. Tim Lee of Tummy Touch Records, a label that reissues library music, he comments that library music was never supposed to be expensive. By its nature, it was utilitarian and designed to be used as cheaply as possible. Johnny Trunk, mentioned earlier, says of the library music movement, In the late 90s, reissues of albums like Dawn of the Dead, a record full of strange library music cues, pricked up the ears of fans and small labels. Then came high-profile acts such as the Chemical Brothers, who sampled the Studio G library track Asian Workshop by James Asher on their 1999 album Surrender. And Jay-Z stick to the script in 2000, which sampled Nick Ingman's KPM track Under Pressure. Library music became this huge untapped area of sound that brought together all sorts of genres from classical to jazz, from rock to electronics. 
And although hip-hop and dance acts had always searched for strange records to sample, now the interest went wider. Trump continues, People got excited about library music because every other musical area had been pillaged for years. Suddenly, all this relatively unknown, relatively underrated, non-commercial music appeared, and they couldn't wait to explore it. Trunk got into collecting library music through a combination of weed and television. He says, most of the music I was getting into was through the TV. I was drinking a lot, probably, smoking a lot, and staying up quite late watching bizarre late-night broadcasts, open university, stuff like that. And I was wondering where the music that they were using in their scientific demonstrations and stuff came from. It was almost like a kind of happy avant-garde music, and I couldn't really work out what it was or where it was from. I couldn't find music that said, you know, this is an album that's used by the Open University, or this is for science broadcasts or anything like that, but I knew I wanted to find it. Trunk also describes library music quite succinctly when he says that it's everything you want from music that you don't get from anything else. Now, much of the research gathered for this turntable talk was from a book that just came out recently called Unusual Sounds, written by David Hollander. We're going to put up a link to this book in the show notes and on Facebook and on Twitter. This is a must-own book. It's incredible. And the music that, even if you'd never heard of it, or if you have heard of it, you thought that it was just going to be pretty boring, it's great. Uh, They do just about everything. Yeah. And we'll uh, also on the show notes, we'll put all the names of the clips that we use so you can kind of reference which ones you really liked. I know we went through a lot of clips there, but I think there's just so much great stuff we kind of wanted to put up as as much as we could, you know, in a limited amount of space. Um, I think one of the last Trump quotes that I was uh, talking about, he was talking about Dawn of the Dead. That entire soundtrack was library music. I was thinking about how fun would it be to be a musical director on a TV show or a movie and just get to go to these places, these big, you know, storage units, not storage units, but storage rooms of of music and just kind of pull records and try to listen to find songs that would match whatever you want. seems like the greatest job in the world. Yeah, just think if you could get access to warehouses that were full of library records that had never been played yet, tax evasion records and private press records. All of these things that are just sitting somewhere yeah. in lots of places around the world and nobody's heard them. My question is like, and you may not know this, but what happened to these places? I mean, they just, is there still something similar now or is it? Library music and production, generally it's called production music now. It's still around. There are a lot of companies doing it and there are a lot in the U.S. They're still in England. KPM is still around. I think that they were purchased by maybe EMI and a lot of them have been purchased by the likes of Sony and stuff, but they keep their smaller names. But there are tons of them around now. None of them are as important yet um, as they were then, but who knows, maybe 30 or 40 years from now, people will be talking about stuff that was made today that we aren't paying any attention to because we're not paying close enough attention to the background music played in Charmed or whatever. (laughs) Well, and it may just not be as innovative and fun as it used to be. Yeah, or we're just not hearing it. Yeah. We're so, could we be so attuned to to hearing background music that we kind of just don't even it doesn't even come across our conscious consciousness? Yeah, it's like it's like it's in the background. <laughs> <laughs> the the concept of like this anonymous emotion, like these guys having to like create emotion for the sake of just having it there, is just so crazy to me because it's so 
diametrically opposite of what most musicians are doing. You know, they're trying to pull forth a specific emotion that they're aiming for and they're writing about. And these guys are kind of like, we're just going to throw stuff out there. And yeah, maybe we'll hit this mood five times and then we'll hit this mood. But it's just so different than like a band going and playing for people who are just trying to directly impact their audience. Yeah, and it's like where um, some of those Brian Eno ambient albums, they're great, and people are often very impressed with, like, he, he wrote a soundtrack, and there was no movie, but it sounds, you know, that's what he was doing, and he was creating moods. That was mid to late 70s. A lot of these guys were doing this in 60s and 70s, and it's a lot of the same stuff with the tape looping and creating moods that he was doing as well. I mean, he's amazing, and he's one of the smartest humans I've ever heard speak, but there were other people doing a lot of the same stuff. One thing with the anonymity, there are there was at least one guy. A lot of them used multiple names mm-hmm. because when people would come in, like uh, companies would come in to look for music for specific TV shows or something. They once they found a, a name of somebody that they liked with a certain sound, they would try to get that person. So guys would start getting pigeonholed, like this guy can do chase scenes or whatever. So a lot of them would change their name. And sort of come up with these weird names that sort of describe this other genre <laughs> that they do just as well. Um, it's pretty funny. Oh, and the other thing I forgot to mention that was part of the quiz earlier. The Monty Python Search for the Holy Grail, that whole soundtrack was library music. So the BBC used KPM a lot. Um, and uh, I remember there was one interview in the in that book that where they're talking about just kind of walking down the halls and seeing Graham Chapman and John Cleese. And they were going in and picking out their songs. That's, that's so great. There was a song you played for me the other night. Is it the theme to, is it, it's just like the NFL theme for, what is it, NBC or? Monday Night Football. Monday Night Football, yeah. So the two biggest, uh, the two most recognizable ones, and maybe we'll add some clips for these too. Monday Night Football was a, a British, British library music song. And then the biggest one, I think, maybe even bigger than that, was the People's Court theme. <laughs> da, da, da. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> There's a lot of good ones. Oh man, it's so great. I think my favorite one of all will be coming up uh here in a moment. Okay. I don't know if we can uh ruin a surprise, but we um we may be coming back in a couple episodes with more information about library music um with somebody who's much more of an expert than us, but this is kind of like a, a primer introduction for somebody like me. Like before Joe really got into this um, and started doing all this research and, and sending me albums and songs and stuff, like I, I really would have had no clue. I really would have thought it was, you know, I had no clue what this music was. And then he starts sending me stuff and it just is, it is infinite, it seems, in the amount of stuff there is. So hopefully we'll have some more stuff for you, but hopefully this was kind of a good, good starter to hear how important this music is in get a few ideas of things you should maybe look for. I remember we were starting to think about this. It was close to a year ago mm-hmm. and I couldn't find any information. And we were asking other people. And then all of a sudden that book comes out. I start finding articles online. And now what Ryan is talking about, we I, I mentioned that I would say something. There's a documentary about library music coming out in October. Um, and we are hoping to speak to the people behind the movie here in a few episodes. So, you can look forward to that. They'll be able to go in much more in depth and they'll be able to go through if they if they sit through the show, they'll be able to go through and correct anything that we said that was inaccurate or hopefully maybe even add some fun stories because they met all of these guys that we're talking about that are still alive. That's so cool. Yeah, we're, we're really excited about that. And we'll put a link to the documentary, their Facebook page, because they have a lot of they have a lot of good trailers in there. Let's go ahead and uh, 
maybe listen to a few songs. I've got the first song. Uh, it is not library music, but uh, still pretty cool song. This is called Sin Barbada, and it's by a guy named Ali Barra.
Absolutely no clue if anything I just said is pronounced the correct way, so sorry about that. Uh, it's from a album called Amalele that uh, I got on a reissue um, done by Domino, Little Axe, Mississippi Records in 2012, but it's actually a 1976 uh, Kafifi record release. As you probably have figured out by how I've butchered everything I've said so far, Alibira is not from America. He's not from around here. He's actually an Ethiopian composer, poet, singer, uh, and nationalist activist. He's a hero and revolutionary of Oromo culture and music. Uh, most of the Ethiopian music that you hear in world music or on, you know, mixes and stuff, it's considered from the Amhara ethnic tradition. Oromo is more of a blend of African and Arabic music traditions. Alibara tuned his guitar like an oud instrument, which is kind of a Middle Eastern stringed instrument. You've probably seen they kind of got the round bass. Alibira was started as a street peddler in his youth to survive. He had such a fantastic voice and presence that he soon joined the Afrakulu, which is a group dedicated to preserve Oromo music and culture. They started getting politically persecuted and arrested, so he fled to Addis Ababa, which is the uh, city in Ethiopia, which is considered the political capital of Africa. Uh, there he he got very famous because he could perform and sing in at least five different languages, and his songs had kind of a politically charged edge. And so he became very popular, especially with the nationalists during the Ethiopian Revolution. So he eventually married a Swedish vice secretary to the ambassador to Ethiopia and moved back to Sweden. And then he moved to Saudi Arabia and then to the U.S. And he was been performing the whole time, really bringing that Aromo style music uh, to the world. He was diagnosed with colon cancer in 2009, but he's still around and kicking and, and still, uh, still even has performed fairly recently. So uh, this song is... Uh, just my, my favorite song from the record. It's a different sound from the kind of the funkier, jazzier Ethiopian sound of that you might have heard, like uh, Mulatto Estake. I think that's how you say his name. But it's 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 kind of got a more reckless, kind of a grittier edge to it. Maybe even a little bit more joyful, uh, a little more open. So uh, I probably should not be doing many more songs with uh, world music because I can't pronounce anything. But I really like that song. <laughs> my my first song is going to be i'm going to continue with library music this one's going to be a, a little bit different because everybody that is listening to the show loves this song and you've all heard it it's piero umiliani with a song called mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Piero Emiliani's Manamana, the original, which was originally in 1968 a soundtrack to a movie called Sweden, Heaven and Hell, which was described as an exploitation documentary film. Now, that song was initially library music, and it was on the aerial label, and the person singing on it, well, the two people singing on it, one of them we mentioned earlier, it was Ennio Morricone's buddy, Alessandro Alessandri is the one saying, mana, mana, he and his wife. It was used in this movie, which is basically soft porn, which is how Jim Henson heard it. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's what I have in my mind. I think everybody has probably heard that song, whether it's the Muppets version or the original British Office show where they, uh, where Stephen Merchant is singing it. It's uh, just a great, wonderful song. And I have an original soundtrack for that Sweden, Heaven and Hell, uh, which is, the actual title is, or in Italian, Spezia Inferno e Paradiso, which which is actually Sweden, he- Heaven and Hell. Oh, actually, no, wait, it's backwards. It's actually Hell and Heaven, so it's backwards from what I thought it was. Just step back for just a minute. Did you say an exploitation documentary? <laughs> I did, <laughs> which is what all of them should be. And sort of what I mean, if you think really a lot about it, it's kind of kind of makes sense. True crime ones, yeah. Uh, You know, call a spade a spade. Exploitation, yeah, yeah. Um. (laughs) But that's that's my first track. There's not a whole lot to say about it. We didn't get into much of the Italian guys um, in that turntable talking. There's just so much to go through. My next song is also somewhat related back to what we were talking about earlier. I mentioned I mentioned a band called Brain Ticket who was on Color Sound, or at least the main guy was. And I didn't say his name because his name, even with all the hard ones we've had tonight, his name is, it's Joel Van Drugenbroek, which if I were to spell that, it would take the rest of the show. (laughs) He was the leader of Brain Ticket, a Krautrock psych band, Belgian band. And the song I'm going to play for you right now is from their album Psychonaut, which was their second album. 
and it's called One Morning. was One Morning by Brain Ticket off their album Psychonaut from 1972. And you can hear some of the experimental experimentation that he was playing around with kind of freely and getting paid to do in at Color Sound 
he was then able to incorporate into his band. And they have, Brain Ticket has three really interesting albums. They don't sound anything like each other. Uh, there's Cottonwood Hill, which was their first one from 1971, which is like four songs. It's very much kraut rock, where Psychonaut, the one we just listened to, kind of, there's a few more acoustic items on there, and there's some more psych in there, and there's even some, there's even some prog stuff in there, if you like that. I don't. Uh, then 1974, they released Celestial Ocean, which is another really good one, but also totally different from the other two. So they're they're good albums, and I know that Cottonwood Hill was recently released for a record store day on Red Vinyl. Uh, great great thing to listen to. Check it out on YouTube, and then you'll then you'll want to buy it. It's all you now with the last track. Thankfully, I put just a simple, good American name that I can pronounce. In fact, it's four American names because it's a guy named Johnny Daryl doing a song called. Um, wait, I think it's Johnny Darrell. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different guy. Uh, all right, the song is called Jimmy Jacob. Take my shirt, Jimmy Jacob. You're already in my shoes. Luck to you, Jimmy Jacob. Though I know you're bound to lose. I was there from spring to summer. Look at me, now I'm gone. She'll change a man with every season. And winter's coming on. So live it up. Have your fun now while you can She's made you feel so important Like you are the only man When you see that snow start falling You'd better look around for another home She'll change a man with every season Winter's coming on Check the south room Jimmy Jacob Tell me What do you find Is your picture There Jimmy Jacob Hanging with the other ones In mind Do you Get my message You'll change a man with every season And winter's coming on That was Johnny Durrell with his song Jimmy Jacob. It's originally recorded in 1969 on an album called Why You've Been Gone So Long, which was a United Artists record. I actually uh, have the track on uh, something I talked about before. It was this past recent day record store day release called The Beginning of the End, The Existential Psychodrama in Country Music, 1956 to 1974, which is a fantastic comp of kind of strange, sad country songs, but not sad in normal ways. It's just kind of like sad people talking about 
kind of sad existences, but in short country burst. It's it's a very interesting record. Joe and I both talked about this. This is probably one of our favorite tracks off the off the record. Uh, there's there's a lot of good ones. Uh, Johnny Darrell, he um, he's kind of an interesting guy. He had a bunch of albums, probably seven or eight albums. He uh, was from Georgia, and he went to the army, moved to Nashville, and he started managing a Holiday Inn near Music Row in Nashville, where all these people would come in, and he he would uh, kind of meet some people, and he became buddy uh, for buddies with Bobby Bear, and Bobby Bear kind of pushed him to United Artists through a guy named Kelso Hurston, who was a producer there. And what Johnny Darrell's really known for is having an ear for what they call lyrically adventurous songs, kind of weird country songs is what I would say. He was the first person to record Ruby, Don't Take Your Love to Town. It was actually the title of, I think, his second album. And he would find these songs, record them, and then usually somebody else would hear his recording of them and take that song to greater heights. Um, like Nimoy did with Ruby. Yes, 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 yes. Space heights. Um, so he kind of had that trend of like kind of taking, being brave enough to try to record not straightforward country songs. He um, got diabetes and died kind of early, kind of shutting his uh, musical career down pretty short. But I really like that song. It's basically a Tom T. Hall-style song. And he, uh, Johnny Darrow's more in the, when he's grouped with artists, he's kind of more grouped with the outlaw country artists. But this song sounds like a kind of Tom T. Hall story song. All right. I think all we have left is to take care of uh, some music trivia. So I'm going to go ahead and play the six tracks again. Remember, I'm looking for the artist. If you want to tell me the name of the song, that would be fantastic. But I'm mostly looking for the artist and the theme that holds them all together. So here we go. Track one. Of the six, I know three of the artists. Okay. For sure. I don't 
know if I know the other ones, though one of them sounds really familiar, and it's that first one. You should know it. Now that I have the artist down of the three, I think I have a pretty good idea of the theme. Okay. So, I don't know who the first one is, but I definitely know I definitely know who they are, if that makes sense. I cannot recognize who that is, exactly. Let's see. They have one of the... They're an okay band. They had a couple good albums. They have one of the dumbest names in all of music. They're from down south, and... Um, Almond Brothers? No, think... That's pretty dumb. More recent. That is a dumb name. They like to sing about Alabama. Is it like the Drive-By Truckers? The Drive-By Truckers, yep. Oh, uh, okay. Yep. Okay, I didn't recognize that voice. I know they switch a little they, bit, but the, I Yeah, they have like them. two or three different singers, I think. Anyways, that first song was Drive-By Truckers. The name of the song was Ronnie and Neil. Talking about uh, Ronnie Van Zant and Neil Young. The second song is The Carpenters with yep. Superstar. Very good, very good. The third and fourth song... I don't know. I don't know. Who, I don't know these. Is I knew this one would be out of your wheelhouse, but um, okay. the third song is the Stone Temple Pilots with a song called Big Bang Baby. And the fourth song, I thought you might have a chance of knowing it's got a very distinct guitar guy. I'm trying to think of uh, with the theme. Um, English pub band. Brinsley Shorts doesn't fit the theme. It doesn't sound like them. Uh, I don't know. Dr. Feelgood is the name oh, of the band. Okay, um, okay. Which I, I think they're pretty good. Anyways, the name of that song is She Does It Right. The next track is Ted Leo and the Pharmacist. Yep. I don't know the name of the song. Uh, it's I, Ballad of a Sin Eater. The last song is The Police. Right. I think it's off of Synchronicity, but I can't think of what the song title is. Murder by Numbers. Okay, I wouldn't have come up with that. Yeah. Anyways, the, okay. like I said, the I was looking more for the artist anyway. So we have the Drive-By Truckers, the Carpenters... The Stone Temple Pilots, Doctor Feelgood, Ted Leo and the Pharmacist, and the Police. So, what could our theme be? Um, <laughs> these are all names of jobs. They are all occupations. Good job. That was kind of hard. I was. I knew Stone Temple Pilots would be a tough get for you. It was. Yeah, it definitely was. I know a few of their songs just because of constant ramming into the head. In the 90s, but... Anyways, I thought about putting John Lee Hooker in there. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> I thought that might be just too much. All right. As always, your public service announcement is please, please, please go out and spend some money buying some records. Go see a show. Go do something that helps somebody who brings you music, creates music, distributes music. It's important to them. It's important to us. You should just do it because it's the right thing to do. Follow us on Facebook. Uh, start conversations with us or join in on conversations if we or anybody else starts them. Follow us on Twitter. Uh, come to our Facebook page. And most importantly, I hate even asking this as I say every time, if you can have the chance... Go to iTunes and give us a rating. It'll help other people see the show. It's a makes a really big deal, even though it just seems silly. So please, if you don't mind, we would really appreciate it. And um, definitely um, stay tuned for the next few shows. We'll uh, have that library music interview, and we are super. We are excited about finding out more. So that's gonna be good. Can't wait to see the movie. I don't want to name drop here, but do you want to share who follows us on Twitter now? As, as it happens, we now are followed by, and this is the official account 
of a charming young woman who we genuinely love. Uh, there's no that's there's no joke about that. It's Yoko Ono. Yeah, uh, which was very cool. We were super super excited about that. I'm not. I haven't gone and looked to see how many people she follows. If it's like a million, but she follows whatever. Us. One other thing I want to say, just just as kind of just something to say. Um, even because this episode isn't long enough yet, is <laughs> I was messing around with uh, with the iTunes, looking at different podcasts, and I said, I wonder how many podcasts they have about Waffle Records. So I searched Waffle Records, just us. Nice. We're the only podcast that's ever covered that. That made me feel really good. In that Google search, we're number one? No, just, just iTunes podcast. Oh, okay. Well, something. <laughs> <laughs> oh man what a jerk <laughs> yeah i know you were really um high there for you were up a little bit yeah just, had to take you out of the just knees. keep me tumbling down <laughs> anyways we really appreciate uh, everybody that supports the show and listens to it so uh yeah we really appreciate yoko ono following us on twitter we do we love her so all right, everybody, have a wonderful uh, rest of your day or your night, as it were, and uh, we will talk to you next time. The end. Sure. <laughs> sure. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.